Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 21. Thank you for being here, and a special thank you to my Patreon patrons. Today's guest is actor and filmmaker Ashley Tabatabai. He produced the short film Falsified with his production company, Taba Productions. It premiered at the Los Angeles International Short Film Festival in 2017. Ashley worked in digital marketing for 14 years and is now a consultant in that space, giving him time to work on his film projects and his podcast, The Ash Taba Show where he talks to an array of film and TV professionals about their journeys and experiences. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Ashley Tabatabai, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's weird being on the other side of the the chair a little bit. Okay, so I said your full name, but you sort of mostly go by Ash? Ash, Ashley, something, you know, people have other names that aren't so flattering for me, I'm sure, but those two were the ones I'll answer to. (laughs) Okay, and I'm just going to say this for our listeners in the future, that today is September 3rd, 2020, so we're amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, and then we're also amidst the Black Lives Matter reawakening. And probably loads of other stuff we don't even know about yet that's bubbling under the surface and coming. Yeah. Oh, and another thing I should say is that I'm in New York City, and you are in... I'm in the UK. So you're. it's four in the afternoon for you, it's 11 in the morning for me. Could you give us a sort of recap of your life and career and your path up to where you are right now? I am, I guess, a bit of a a cultural nomad and a bit of a weird hybrid. Like, I sound North (laughs) American-ish. I'm not. My mom is English and German. My dad was from Iran. I was born in the UK, so legally I'm British. But I left when I was like four or five uh, and moved to Madrid uh, and grew up in Spain and pretty much lived there till I was almost 20. And I went to an international school, so this kind of gets back to the first point of the accent. If anyone knows international schooling, most of the kids there aren't American or British. They're pretty much any other country you can think of. Like, my friends all spoke English as a second or third language, and they all spoke with an American-ish accent because they knew English from movies and TV. And you just pick it up. And as I said, I was five, and we're sponges as a kid, so... I'm told I had a pretty neutral accent prior to that. And I think, I suppose I suppose trying to fit in and just you hear stuff and I got this American amalgamation. So that explains hopefully to people a little bit about the cultural diversity for me. Um, I always kind of joke, if anyone knows a psychiatrist to help me unravel that, then um, <laughs> it'll be well worth the money. I, I've been acting since I was maybe 15, 16 But I never really at that age thought that it was something you could do as a career. I came very much from an academic focused background because of of my dad's view of of that. And, you know, that part of the world academics is a big deal. So it was always the thing for me that I was going to go to college, get a degree, which I did. I got a degree in management. It's like nothing to do with performing arts, which I'm glad I got. I got to the final year of that and I realized this, this doesn't quite... Like something's missing. And I started to explore acting as, uh, I guess, just getting back into it for the craft and taking classes. And then naturally that became, you know, you start doing short films and, oh, maybe I'll get some headshots. And then I started to get within six months very serious about 
let me pursue this as a potential avenue to explore as a career, but also having the fallback of that degree to pay bills and, and, and sort of work in another sector. And so I had this very weird dual life, which felt many times like it was a dual life, where I was pursuing acting, taking classes, auditioning, agents, all that stuff that people do. But I also worked in digital marketing and I was working like corporate style for over a decade and marketing agencies doing like pretty much what you could consider a proper career. That kind of came to a head for me about three years ago where I got to the point where I was like, I don't really feel the corporate game anymore. I moved into freelancing and, and consulting and that still helps me cover overheads. But the key thing was it freed up a lot of time to make my own work. And I think that's been the big thing for me as a as a performer, as an artist, to not just wait for the phone to ring and for opportunities to come, but to you know, look at the stories you want to tell. And, and I've been lucky that I've been able to make great contacts and then collaborate them to, to make short films of my own. And that's sort of where I'm at, I think, in this mindset of make my own films. Uh, I have my own podcast, much like you do. I've, you know, got all that stuff on the go. But I have that kind of corporate background to fall back on to help me freelance and pay bills because you got to eat. Yeah. During that, you might have mentioned this, and I'm sorry if I wasn't paying attention, but during that 10 years of marketing corporate, were you working on side projects? Were you acting? Were you? I was acting throughout all of it. I wasn't, I started working on my own side projects around, what are we, 2020, five, six years ago. You know, the, the first half of that time was very much just, I guess what traditional acting routes sort of usually are, where you just take classes you hunt down for an agent, you go to the auditions and you kind of hit the audition circuit and you book a job every so often and you do the job. And so I was doing that at the same time. I was very upfront with employers where I was like, this is what I do. You're going to find that because you Google me, you won't find anyone else. I can't really hide it. <laughs> and it was just a case of saying, when I get an audition, I'm going like, sorry, but that's the deal. And, and nine times out of 10, they were cool with that. Yeah. Amazing. And then the future for you, is your goal to direct the next James Bond movie or is it to direct your own? You've done short films. Are you trying to get to a full film or to a television series or? Eventually, yeah. Um, I, I have a couple of short films that are written that I'm, one's ready to shoot. We just can't shoot at the moment. The other needs funding. So I'm kind of able to focus on that a little bit. One is just a passion project. The other I, I kind of see as potentially being then a proof of concept for a possible miniseries. And then, yeah, you know, make more feature films and move on to bigger content. But I think it's important to do stuff a bit DIY yourself to have a, as, a, as a calling card, prove that you can manage your money, then prove you can manage other people's money, and then hopefully start getting attention of people to pitch you for projects or help you get much bigger funding with bigger teams. I don't know if that'd be directing for me as opposed to like writing and producing and maybe being more of a, of a showrunner yeah. than a director, but uh -huh. who knows right now, maybe in the 10 years, it'll be, maybe it'll all be AI in 10 years anyway. And we don't even have a job. Who knows? It won't. I assure you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah. I'll be here and helpful, but won't be everything. Okay, so you've covered a lot of this, but could you describe your demographics to us? Race isn't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the box I tick is white Caucasian. I suppose that's how I would put the race. 
but, but very mixed culturally. British legally, and then everything else under the sun. Age, please don't let me say it. No, age is 37. Yeah, I was go- like, if you don't want to say. <laughs> I don't care. You go on IMDb, you'll see it anyway. It doesn't make a difference. Uh, 37 going on 12. Gender is male. And uh, what's the Facebook thing? It's complicated? It's complicated, no, yeah. Uh, single, single, <laughs> single. Which is the same as it's complicated. And, and then amazing, uh, just a side question, because I'm a American and we only learn English because that's how we roll, baby. But you lived in Madrid, so I assume you speak English and Spanish. Yeah. Anything else? Enough French to get by conversationally. Like we did, I did about four years in high school and it's got enough similarities to Spanish that if I'm really stuck, I can kind of bail myself out to have a conversation like <laughs> bad, badly. Yeah. Um, but Spanish is fluent. Amazing. So now let's get to know your creative personality. What is a live event that you like to experience? I mean, theater is always great when we can go to theater, right? For, for like Christmas, I like to get people gifts that are experiential. And usually it is like theater tickets to a show. You know, it's great to get my mom stuff for like musicals, for stuff she loves from back in the day, like, you know, Sound of Music or the Rat Pack or, or you know, like um, anything like that. So that stuff's always great. For me, you know, to go to a a live rock show, a rock gig, like to see a band, the kind of band that every time you see them live, it's always a slightly different take on the same song. Like that to me is always really amazing. Um, You know, Springsteen as an example, or or people like that are always awesome live. I guess also I'm going to sound really, you know, European about it. Uh, Football, and by that I mean soccer, (laughs) which isn't arts, which isn't arts, but to go to like a, a live game like that, there's something energetically about being in a space with thousands of people where there's a live sports event happening and you have op- opposition fans. And there's just something about that energy that's very different to a music or a theater uh, experience. Yeah. Like theater is great because as an audience, sort of you're a collective and you're all walking through the journey and you, ha- you each have your own personal journey of how you're perceiving the story. But sort of the story is interpreted generally one way. Sports, you're going into a place where your audience is not on the same side and yet at the same time they're all on the same side because they're just there for like the experience and the emotional journey that's gonna ensue (laughs) and the thing is like you know each game is is going to be different because the notes are going to change one could be a lot more boring than the other and then other times something happens in the last moment and you just you, you flip out it's like you know kobe hitting a buzzer beater and you're like oh my God, like in the play, you're like, oh my God. The number of times that I swear in Spanish watching soccer on TV is, uh, yeah, unacceptable to many people. That's funny. Okay, um, what is a piece of art that you like? It's quite a broad question. Are we, when, we, when we talk about art, what are we talking about? Like just generally or? Okay, so I think a lot of people think paintings or whatever. I think like architecture, even theater. I mean, you already said theater, that could be it. Oh, you know, wow. crop circles, you know, an ancient cave drawing. I literally... It could be anything. <laughs> there's so many things. I don't know if there's a favorite. I guess what as soon as you said that, what sprang to mind for me was um, the bean in Chicago. Yeah. The aesthetic of it and sort of the, the, the way that it, it kind of plays with your visual interpretation of things. And I think also just on a personal sense, sort of meaning it has for me where last summer we took a cross-country trip from LA through Chicago to New York with my dad and, and cousin and, and some other family members. It was quite a poignant moment. My dad wasn't very well at the time. And I think taking him there and being able to sort of experience that with him, that has resonance with me because of both what the thing is, but also because of what it then meant 
on a personal note, which is what art should be, I think. Yeah, absolutely. See, and I just assume everybody knows what the bean is. On your episode page on my website, I will put a photo of the bean. Okay, what keeps you motivated to keep on creating? Like if there's ever a day where you're like, I don't feel like it, but what makes you go? It's a good question because I think the answer to that question changes as well with where you're at in life. I'd love to say like the big rah-rah, like, you know, you you have to keep going and you got to hustle kind of answer. But I think that's kind of bullshit too. I think that's that's false ego. I try not to force it. I feel like if I have a day where I actually am not feeling it, I try and just go and do something else to take my mind off of that and and come back later. I think there's a balance. You need to have the discipline to do each day. But also, I think you just know in of yourself that if you do sit down and it's going to be shit, you know it's going to be shit before you do anything. I think my motivation is more implicit. I think it is very much like, I know that if I don't create and tell the stories I want to tell, they won't get told. You know, like I'm 37, then I'll be 38, then I'll be 30. And like the time thing keeps clicking on and you sort of, you know, you start thinking a little bit about legacy and what you want to do and what you want to put out in the world and that subtle driver i think is a big driver for me yeah amazing okay you mentioned concerts earlier what type of music do you listen to all kinds which is a cop-out answer but if i had to really be pushed i'd probably go for rock or, or blues older older stuff too um put on hendrix or, or put on zeppelin um I, I do like a little bit of pearl jam too if we're getting a little bit more <laughs> recent, recent <laughs> which is not recent that's like the 90s yep. As in, like, they're still gigging recent. (laughs) But then, you know, a good song is a good song. And so I'm not genre specific, but I would gravitate to that. Amazing, amazing. Okay, so now let's jump to your financial personality. Are you bad or good with money? I think I'm okay. I think I could be better, but I don't think I'm, I'm not going month to month, check to check. And I think that's intentional and by design. And I think that makes it a much better place than obviously if you are, but I think there's still scope to improve for sure. Yeah. Um, Are you a saver or a spender? Well, both, but I think more of a saver so that I can then spend on the things that matter. Yeah. Okay. And then are you risk averse or a risk taker? Yeah. It depends who you ask. I mean, I probably err more towards like risk averse, but then on the flip, I I spent $25,000 of my own money on a short film that didn't make any money back. So maybe that's a risk taker too. I don't know. Yeah. Through my eyes, I class myself as maybe a little bit risk averse, but then maybe someone looking at me would go, you're talking garbage. And to a certain extent, in order to live a creative or freelance life, you have to be a risk taker. If you were sane and just wanted like a regular life, you know, or a steady life, you would not go into the creative world <laughs> and, and you're probably right and and maybe i'm just my perception of what a risk taker financially is is very inflated and and inaccurate because in my eyes i'm like well i'm not investing 90 percent of my money in stocks and shares and companies and like all these things and that to me is how i from an entrepreneur's perspective see risk as an investment and i'm like i'm not doing that plus i would say you spent over a decade in what I call a regular job. <laughs> yeah. So there was there was a steady paycheck, which is not risk taking, mm-hmm. really. Exactly. Okay. So growing up, did you have good financial examples? Yes and no. And I think the answer to the yes is maybe because of the things that probably you shouldn't do, but were still good examples in hindsight. I don't think my parents were terrible with money. I don't think they were great with money. I think like many people. They were just sort of doing their thing and no one had shown them much like no one shows us and much like no one's really taught this in, in schools, which is a whole other problem. We were pretty well to do, 
because of my dad's just hard work. I went to, like I said, in the top international school where most of the kids were kids of diplomats or like family members were in huge corporations that paid for the tuition or they were from like famous families and we weren't any of that. It's just my dad had the money and academics was important. But then, you know, the money wasn't maybe invested in the best ways. Like he didn't really do stocks or shares or invest it in in real estate or use what he had when it was available to possibly make it a better nest egg down the line. You'd say, well, that's a bad example. But then in some ways I look at it now and say, but that's actually been quite a good one to look at and say, well, I'm not to judge and I'll make my own mistakes, but I can see how if it was me, I could maybe learn from that and how I would do it a bit differently. I feel that we were quite blessed because we had what I think many people chase. We had the big house with the fancy cars, the lifestyle with the pool in Spain and all that stuff. And we all appreciated it. But then like that disappeared. In short, my dad was studying up a company. It was based in the aviation industry. They raised $2 million. They needed three. Uh, and then 9-11 happened. And because it was the aviation industry, the thing fell through. It was very difficult to get back to that. And he'd been living off of savings for like two years. And all of a sudden, the lifestyle you had before starts to unravel. And again, at the time, that seems catastrophic. And it's tough to go through, especially, you know, when you're a lot younger. But blessing, because you then move to a place where you don't have all the fancy stuff you maybe did. But you look at it and go, well, I have had it. If I don't get it again, that's okay. Having had it, it's not really that different to not having it. And so you don't really have the need to maybe chase utopia. You kind of then do stuff because you want to do stuff because you feel it has a deeper meaning than the picket fence and the lifestyle. Yeah. Amazing. This might be a two-part question. The question is at the start of your career, what did your finances look like? That could be like right when you got out of school and then maybe again when you decided to go consulting. Right when I got out of school, I didn't have any debt. So that was, I suppose, good. I wasn't allowed a student loan. So basically in the UK, uh, you have to have lived in the country for up to three years before the start of your course, or at least at that time. Mm -hmm. That money would have come in handy because of what I just explained with my my dad's situation. And at the time it was like, well, I'm a British citizen. My family paid taxes here for decades. And you're not letting me have tuition covered because I've only been here for six months. Okay. But that was a blessing because I didn't owe anyone anything. And I think for me, like student debt's a huge problem. Super grateful that I didn't have that and just went through a little bit of a really pinching the belt for three years, but much better. So I came out with no debt and, you know, it was a case of not having any money either, but at least being on like literally zero and then just, you know, getting paychecks and, and accumulating and saving. That was that sort of initial point. When I moved and went into freelancing, I had about probably six or eight months worth of of savings in the bank based on like a realistic view of what I thought my monthly outgoings would be being realistic and being a bit more frugal. Like I'm not going to go out three times a week and spend 40 bucks on a meal because I don't need to. And I think that was important because it then gave a bit of a a cushion to give me some time to find some clients and and build that myself. Um, And that helped. Side question about the consulting. How much of your time is spent on the consulting, earning money that way versus your creative projects? About half at the moment. Um, And by that, I mean like maybe 20 hours, maybe 30 on a big week. 
but that's been very intentional for me. Like I've, you know, I write it down like daily and I'm like, I want to earn X amount and I want it to be for like max 20, 25 hours a week tops. I could do 40 hours. I could do 60. I could get more clients and do more biz dev to bring in maybe a bit more money, but what's the offset? And the whole thing has been, no, like I want at least half the week free to be able to write, get my projects produced and, you know, follow up stuff with there to have the time to do the podcast I'm doing, which is great to talk to all kinds of people. And, and without that, I may as well have just stayed in a regular nine to five. So that's intentional. Amazing question that I assume is the answer is no, but have you had any health challenges? Not personally. There have been family health challenges in the last few years, like I said, with, with my dad. And so indirectly, Yes, but uh, I think I'm in good health. Yeah. Have they impacted your finances at all or your family's finances? Last year, yes, because I couldn't work as much freelance-wise because I was the one that was caring for my dad. So as a sole carer, you literally put your life on pause. I had a little bit of income for some freelance gigs, but I like super scaled down. It was not... You get perspective. Like at that point, I'm like, it's not about making money now. Like I have enough in my savings account and he was covering some stuff too and... It did have an impact. It does. It doesn't matter. Like the money stuff doesn't matter when you have real family life stuff going on. You see what's important. Yeah. Um, this question also might not apply to you because you seem like you know where your money's going. But when you have excess money, like maybe you get a, a big paycheck, where do you? What's that? What's what's that? Excess, excess money. It depends. I try to put a little bit into a savings account that I have. But I also, where possible, if I then can do that, will put a little bit into a stocks and shares account that I have. So I'm kind of diversifying. And then, you know, if I know there's something specific that I'm saving for, like a big trip or say it's a project I'm doing, which might need a little bit of my own personal investment, I'll sort of pocket it to that because it's that ongoing reinvestment into the artist's career, which is like your business. You need to... I need new headshots because I've not got some for four years or I need to, you know, invest in some new lights for self-tape or like whatever. So it might go towards that kind of stuff too. Amazing. Um, On a daily basis, do you worry about money? Not anymore, which sounds weird because you think as a freelancer, you'd be more worried about money than when you're getting a staple paycheck. I kind of was thinking about this the other day. And whilst I maybe some months make less than I did with the stable paycheck and others much more, I kind of enjoy it more because it feels like you've earned the money as opposed to not that you don't earn it when you're working nine to five, but it's it, it's more personal. I don't worry about it. It feels a bit more like a, a fun game where it's like, I feel like it's in my hands and I can create opportunities to find an opportunity that'll bring in some money here or the mindset of I can make something that might be then something that could be a money vehicle um, down the line, which is sort of where my head's at at the moment. Yeah. Throughout your life, have you used a budget? I'm thinking about it. Not, not really. I mean, I do use like QuickBooks and stuff to manage my finances so I know where it's going, but it's more, I think that's just become like a compulsive habit. Maybe that's my German side coming out of being super efficient. <laughs> I don't know. I have gone through the exercise of saying, this is what my base, base, baseline monthly outgoings are. And then like, this is what my outgoings really are when I add on like actually having a bit of a life because I want to, like, I want to buy a latte. I don't want to, I don't believe in the whole like, 
oh, like be super frugal and like don't buy a $3 latte. It's like if you enjoy a latte, get a goddamn latte. Just make sure that you can afford it. And I think that exercise is is important to at least know what your general average spend is and, and sort of have an idea or a figure of your ideal amount of money in mind too. You know, like I think that's, I think it can be dangerous if it's just a mindset of I just need to make more because where does it end? So that's not really a budget, but it is a, a focus on stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay, what is a good financial decision that you've made not forcing those uh people at college to actually give me a student loan because maybe i could have got one so i suppose that's a really good decision so because you couldn't get a loan does that mean you like worked just worked and paid it off no 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 like i i wasn't given any money to go towards that so my dad had some money earmarked aside and he paid for the tuition i lived on campus for the first year but then like second and third year because it was about an hour from where my family then moved to, I would commute. And so I missed out maybe on some of the on-campus stuff that you have, but I wasn't you know, paying for all that stuff. I didn't maybe buy all the books because the internet back then wasn't quite as prominent as it is now. And so back then it would be like 50, 60 bucks for one textbook. It's like, I, what? Like, And I need to get like 20 of these bad boys. That's not going to work. So it was more that and then like working a, a sort of part-time job my final year to just cover basic costs like gas and stuff like that. Okay. Um, what is a terrible financial decision you've made? Hmm. Oh, no, that came to me. That came quick. <laughs> I was going to say the short film I made, not because I think it's terrible, but I think other people think it's terrible because that money, that money, because that money to them is like, that's a deposit on a house. To me, that was like the best money spent. Yep. No, a bad, a bad decision on hindsight. So I, I was starting the process to get a visa to work as an actor in the States because I, I need one. That, that costs a fair few thousand dollars. And instead of paying it all up front and getting the lawyers that I was going to work with to just get the process done within the two, three months it took, I kind of took my time with it. I sort of paid them half up front and then sort of took like six to nine months to get case material. And then by the time it got to when I was really ready, they'd gone through a whole bunch of turmoil themselves and they just vanished. They just disappeared with people's money. And so I lost out on, it was a good few thousand dollars at the time, which is a, which is a sting, a little bit of a burn. Because I was like mid twenties, and you know, at that age, a few thousand is still. It's I mean, even at this age, but especially then, that was like, okay, learn learn my lesson there. Bad decision to not just pull the gun. So, did you ever get the visa? Or did I you... did, but not with them. Yeah, okay, <laughs> not with them. I learned the lesson, and I was like, next time I'm when I'm ready, I make sure the case is ready, and I make sure that I have all the funds before I even approach anyone. And if they say we're good, and I'm like, cool, here's the cash, let's go, let's just get this turned around straight away and not not procrastinate i think there's a lesson in here to be had and i i don't know it's not i don't want to lecture anybody but as i get older yeah i'm not super old but like as i get older i'm realizing that if you want anything done in the world you have to do it or make it happen and that includes when you're paying people money to do something you can give people money and they will like you have to stay on top of them like it's not just enough to be like here's your money do the job like you have to make sure they're moving and all that. So I don't know what the lesson here is other than even when you're spending large amounts of money, or maybe especially when you're spending large amounts of money, you have to make sure you're getting what you want 
not just expecting the people to or the company to do what they say they're going to do. Yeah. And I think not not procrastinate on things that, you know, you let it just kind of dwindle for many, many, many months or weeks or whatever your case is. Managing those expectations, but also trying to let yourself really feel out who the people are. If you have the ability to try and gauge their vibe and see if they resonate with you as a person, that's important. You know, like you maybe can't know if you can trust them implicitly because who knows what that even means. But your gut will let you know if something's off with someone. And that is an important sort of skill to let yourself lean into. Yeah, that's another thing. Trust your gut. (laughs) Because, okay, if your gut's wrong, it's going to be wrong out of one in a thousand times. Like, so it's worth messing up that one out of a thousand times than the 999 other times your gut is going to be right. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so this, because you're in the UK, I don't know what this is going to entail, but do you have an entity, a corporation, anything like that? I don't know. Explain how those things work for you. I have two limited companies, two LLCs um, over here. One is for my consulting, digital marketing, coaching work. Uh, and the other is is my production company that I basically use for the short films that I make. Initially, that has been set up more for a legal perspective to basically, you know, be the legal entity for insurance and to basically just, you know, help us when it comes to hiring people and kit and, and not putting the liability on me as an individual in case, I don't know, a light or a camera or a person gets hurt or broken on a, on a shoot, which could happen. And then, you know, now that I'm in the stage of of raising funding and capital, it helps to have a company to put that into as opposed to coming to me as an individual and then me getting taxed out of the backside on something that's not personal income tax, it's capital. Right, right. Okay. Do you file your own taxes? I have done in the last few years, but sooner or later, that's going to change. I'm going to need someone to uh, take that fun away from me. (laughs) And and do you do it for both your companies and you? Mm Mm-hmm. But the production company hasn't really had much going through it historically, so that's not been such a challenge, but it will be moving forward. Um, The other two isn't quite as difficult because they kind of feed each other. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a retirement plan financially, and what does it look like if you do or don't? (laughs) Do I sort of? I mean... You know, through working in the corporate world, there there were like, you know, a few pensions that I was automatically involved in. That, you know, they put in some money and obviously I, I sort of had it matched with a little bit of my salary. That's just kind of sitting there now. Like I don't put money into the pensions because um, I suppose personally, I don't, um, for lack of a better term, believe in the idea of the pension. I don't necessarily think it's going to be there to save me when I get to that retirement age anyway. Uh, that's just my, my view. I don't even think it's that great for people who might need it now. This is maybe a a random step, but it was like 20 or 30% of first responders and and firefighters in the States. Only 20% of them were, were getting access to their pension or something like something like that. It's not good is my point. Uh, well, it's complicated. So I'll just say for the union I'm in and it's pension plan, you have to make X amount of dollars in order to get a half pension credit. And you have to get the half pension credit, which is like the minimal amount. You have to get that for five years running. So you have to make X amount of money for five years. If you say make it for four years and then that's it or something, you switch careers or you join a different union or something, then you don't get anything out of that pension. 
So it's it's that's just one example of like a rule. And also like with firefighters and stuff, a lot of them are part time. So the full time ones might. Point is, there's a lot to it, and I guess it's more that thing of the Fed is printing so much money, and the banks here are printing so much money. By the time we get to that age, who knows what the value of these currencies are going to be? And there's just too many unknowns. So I, you know, for me, my view is slowly trying to just establish a bit of a nest egg for myself that is in a bit more of my own hands. So we don't have like a 401k in the UK that doesn't really exist. What they do have here is something called an ISA. So basically it's a interest-free savings allowance that everybody gets. So in the UK, you can um, invest up to £20,000. It's about $25,000-ish. Any interest, anything you make off the back of that is tax-free. And so you can invest that into just like a, a high interest savings account, but that doesn't really exist and that's not a good deal, but that's an option. The other option people have is you can invest it into stocks and shares, which could be an option. And then they also have this thing called a lifetime ISA. So with that, you can invest up to 4,000 of your allowance a year. It's not much, but the government matches up to 25% of what you invest in that year. So if you do that over time, you potentially could get a fair amount just given to you from the government for as long as they keep this in play. The catch with that is it has to go towards your retirement. So you can't cash it out until you hit 60, 65. You just keep putting in a little bit um, and let that grow. And then I'm not doing this yet. I might do it if I have a little bit of money eventually, but casually just keeping an eye on like, you know, silver, gold, and looking at that as an option just to just to have in case the whole financial system, I don't see that kind of happening, but you just never know. So my eye is just, I'm just keeping an eye on that and going, maybe it's not a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, that's like here now, maybe it's globally, but here everyone's getting real estate right now because you want something that's valuable that can fluctuate with the inflation or whatever the Fed does printing money, the asset is going to be valued at whatever it fluctuates to. So, so, but that's, you know, gold and silver, same idea. I hear a lot of people talk Bitcoin and I don't know how I feel about that because it just seems so variable and it fluctuates that much that Bitcoin or an iteration of it, I think eventually will become the currency but when we don't know and whether it is bitcoin again like who's to say it just seems to me a little bit risky to put all your eggs in that basket because it could disappear like that diversify never put all your eggs in one basket i think bitcoin is here for the long run i mean it's been around over 10 years 15 years 20 years i don't know it's it's been around for a while I know there's Bitcoin too, and then there's like Ethereum, which fixes some of the problems with Bitcoin. So even though Bitcoin has a bunch of problems, I think it sort of has established itself. But like you say, whatever it is, is here for the long haul. I myself am not willing to go do more research and say, you know what? Yeah, I do need some Bitcoin. I like I maybe I would go to an ETF with a bunch of the coins and do there. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Like I'm not. It's like it's like gold and silver. Like I. I'm not opposed to it. It's here, but I'm I'm not jumping in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just kind of keeping a sort of casual eye on it. And then it's one of those, like, if I do have a, a, a surplus on my surplus, okay, maybe. Yeah. What job of yours has been the most financially lucrative? You know, I have had a few freelancer coaching clients, uh, one earlier this year as well, that 
they pay me quite a lot for a month's work to basically coach and project manage a piece for them. And that's just them paying for my experience in that world. And I think that is where you start to see where you can add value. I think that that's why it was the bigger paycheck, because you get to a point where you realize it's not just about doing a job. It's about what is it that you have as a, as a service or a skill or a product that's adding value to people? Cause that's when they're going to be willing to pay you more for it. Yeah. Do you have a professional network and has it helped you make more money? Uh, short answer is, is yes. And I suppose yes, but indirectly maybe. And you know, you do kind of see eventually that it's quite a small world, even though there's a lot of people in it. Like you start to see, the same kind of movers and shakers and then that person is connected to that person and once they trust you then a referral leads to this and it's just the domino effect you can't really extrapolate the nth degree of what action at one point led to then the the money if we're literally talking dollars in the bank account I don't know how you attribute that. Yeah. And, and I think also what I'm exploring or finding or people are discovering as they listen to this podcast is that all artists do their art sort of differently. The money is sort of the same. Money works the way money works. Put it in an asset, not tied to a currency. That all works the same. But how different people go through their careers, how they do their art, you know, that's the part that's all different and gray and it's not cut and dry. Mm. That's art. Yeah, that's art, baby. No formula to it. If there was, we, we'd still. Well, no, we wouldn't do it. It'd just be banking. Or, or in my industry, it's Broadway. That's Broadway. You know, like how do you make money on Broadway? Well, you put, you get a bunch of stars together and you put them on stage and you make money. Right. Uh, and if you don't do that, you're not gonna make money. There, are, there are formulas to certain things, but not for the individual per se. Mm, yeah. Fair enough. Um, okay. How much of your success has been hard work versus luck? I don't really believe in luck. I do believe in work or hard work, but I don't necessarily think that the ethos of I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of idea, I don't think makes sense to me either. So I think it's important to distinguish. It's more persistence and practice as opposed to, you know, I've got to put in 20 hours a day, every day, hard work like that. I think it's it's been more ongoing persistently investing energy and time over time, having the ability to look and see that there is growth, but not also rushing it. The ability to be patient with yourself, I suppose, a little bit. Stuff then starts to eventually happen. And you could, I guess, call that luck when it happens because it looks like magic fairy dust has been sprinkled on you and you're ordained with a gift. But then you think back and go, 10 years ago, there was no fairy dust and there was no luck. And it's literally just because I've done it enough times that I've developed a craft and I know enough people and I've done some stuff that now you've sort of got a bit of a, a recipe and you have a cookbook with something that you've got your one or two family recipes that people can taste. Whereas 10 years ago, you just had some salt and pepper and you didn't really know what you're making. That's a really terrible analogy, but I think you should use it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I love it. Do you have any financial goals? Let's say for this year, maybe. So I am looking to raise money for a short film because we know we need budget for it. Um, 40 to 50,000 pounds. So that's like maybe $60,000, I think. I don't know if I'll make, you know, get that all in this year, but there is a clear focus on working on how to raise that funding. Going through different private funding channels, we'll probably eventually do a crowdfunding for it too. All through the company, so it's expense, uh, you know, we can expense it. 
I suppose is that challenge of how to raise funding for a short film because a short film doesn't have profit associated with it almost ever. So it's going to be an interesting challenge. I know people that have raised that kind of amount and more for shorts. You know, that's kind of my, my big sort of with a number attached financial goal for the next six months or so. I guess on a more personal level, me being able to do 20 hours work a week in non-artist related work, basically earn enough to cover my expenses and then another maybe 25% on top of that for putting a bit away here and, you know, investing a bit in my stocks and shares. And, you know, that might just be a few hundred bucks like here and there. Again, it's that consistency. I believe that if you invest a hundred bucks a month every month, then over time that eventually does accumulate if you're able to pick the right kind of portfolio of stocks and shares, which, you know, for me would not be mutual funds. It would be, you know, the tracker indexes where there's less involved because I don't want to be researching stocks every day. Like I'm not Warren Buffett and I don't enjoy researching a business eight hours a day. I respect the guy that he does that, but it's not for me. I'd rather use a diversified portfolio with a tracker index where it gives me just, you know, fractional shares on all these big companies. And over time, it'll slowly accumulate. And it's the long haul investment that I'm interested in not the quick returns of trying to play the market, which I don't think you can do anyway, unless, I don't know, you're a Wall Street trader with a cocaine habit. <laughs> yeah. And I will say, I mean, everybody listening who maybe doesn't have a financial advisor, I, you know, it would probably be a good idea. But I think what you just said is sort of what every financial advisor will tell you. <laughs> I, I got a book here, which I read early this year. I'm going to plug it. I don't get anything for it. Uh, you might have heard of it. Have you heard of the this book by Ramit Sethi? I'll, I will teach you to be rich. Terrible, terrible name of a book. I think he'd admit that himself. And it's, it's US specific too. So he talks about 401ks and investments and stuff. How to get the most out of your credit cards, how to look at, you know, to look at, you know, investing money in your 401k or your stocks and shares, what to look for with a savings account. Like me, like most people, I just had a standard savings account that my bank gave me where the interest rate was like not point not five percent. And then with COVID, it's like now we've got to put it down to not point not two percent and you're getting nothing. I think you have slightly better interest rates in the States, although not great, but still better than here. It's just over 1% here in like the best savings account, which is not great, but that's much better than if you go with a standard bank. And small shifts that he puts in this book for me have made like a big difference. It's all about making your money work for you. Real estate comes into the equation too. So reading people like him, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, Robert Kiyosaki, and just taking what's out there. If you can't, I guess, afford a financial advisor or feel like it's right for you right now, there is research available that you can do to inform yourself with the internet. Like this thing is a tool not just for us to consume YouTube and Netflix all the time. We can gain knowledge that I can attest to. Like, that's changed my financial habits just this year. Ashley, this is amazing. So I used to have a question, two things about book recommendations. I would say, do you have one for your art or your craft that you would recommend? And then do you have one on finance or business or anything like that? Nobody ever gave me an answer, <laughs> ever. So you took it out? After like 10 or 15 interviews, I just cut the question. I should have kept the question just for you. <laughs> well, I'm glad I brought it up then, seeing how the question wasn't in there. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, this is the most practical book. I feel like I'm selling it, like holding it like this. I Will Teach You To Be Rich by Ramit Sethi, but you can find him on Twitter. 
Rich Dad Poor Dad I thought was really great as well from a mindset perspective. I will say Rich Dad Poor Dad. I feel like that is the number one game changer for anybody. And it's it's short. And if you if you listen to some of the stuff he's talked about in the last few months with what's going on, he talks a lot about the fact that we are shifting from the industrial era to the information era. He's all about assets. He's all about assets historically being real estate, which they still will be. But also very much now, like with the power of the internet, you can create assets in the form of information in the form of products that could be a book or a course. That's not as scary as it sounds because everybody has something that they can offer, if not many things. Diversifying your potential income streams by creating multiple products. That book, I think, is, is yeah, I'm with you, up there, a strong one. But, but this one is very practical, like, you know, people looking at different credit cards, how to approach savings from a stocks and shares perspective. I, I'd recommend that too. Amazing. Thank you for that, Ashley. <laughs> uh, if money wasn't an issue, what would your life's goal be? It's a really interesting question. And when I got it sent through the other day, I, I took a bit of time to think about it. And I was really pleasantly surprised that the answer was not really that different to what I'm doing now. Yeah. <laughs> which I think I think and hope is a good sign. That wouldn't That wouldn't have been the case maybe four or five years ago. I would still want to be making my own films and content and like telling the stories that I want to tell, whether that's, you know, through the vehicle of a short film, feature film series, but like, I, I know I want to do that. I'd still probably do my podcast because it's just great to talk to different people, learn from their experiences. Cause that's part of life is learning from what others have done and you can grow from that. So would certain things maybe change a little bit? Sure. I think it would be more in the facet of I'd maybe travel a bit more when we're allowed to travel to enjoy taking in more of the world and different, you know, cultures that I'm intrigued by. You know, I'd love to go through Latin America and explore, you know, all kinds of things there and, you know, do the Inca Trail or go to the Galapagos and that stuff would be great. And I guess it'd be nice to know that, you know, money's not an object and you don't have to worry about the idea of one day raising a family and having kids and having to look at that from a bank balance perspective, which I don't think is what it should be. But I think, unfortunately, for many people, you do have to give that consideration. So it would ease those areas and give more opportunities for stuff like that. But I don't think it would change what I, at my core, you know, I'm doing it now anyway. Amazing. What financial advice would you give yourself back when you started out your career? Or would you give to an actor or writer who's starting out right now. I can speak for actors more so. I think we have a really bad relationship with the idea of money. I don't think people teach business very well in general college classes or high schools, let alone to people that might go to a performing arts or drama school. And I think sometimes it can be taboo for actors to feel like they should focus on that. It's a very strange relationship that we have, but I don't believe in the starving artist idea. I never did. So it's not advice I would give myself. But I guess just when you're starting out, I think the, the big thing is to really remind yourself that if you're in this for a career and you want to try and build this as, as that, you have to remember that it is a business. It is show business, not show art. You can do show art, but then you have to realize that that might not pay your bills and you got to find another way to do that. And that's okay too. But if you want the career, learn the business Educate yourself on how your strand of the business works, but also just on money generally, like financial advisors or the books that we spoke about. Like, 
That wasn't around when I started out because the internet wasn't as big as it is now. And I think with the access we have with a one or two click thing online, you can teach yourself a lot about how to use your money. And if I was an actor, I would be making sure I was putting aside a little bit every month if I could, and also making sure that I was able to invest in my own projects because there is no magic bullet. But if there is any possible like big win, it's in making your own content and putting on your own shows, whether it's theater or screen, it doesn't really matter. But that's the best way to invest your money in your career, in my personal opinion. Amazing. Is right now, with everything going on in the world, is right now a good time for students to be in school studying art, let's say filmmaking? I don't know. I have I have some filmmaking students that I know I've, I've been talking to, and they've been on the fence about whether they're going to go back for this next year because especially the final year students, like if you're a filmmaking student, I think a lot of times you go because you want to have the opportunity to make a final year project. And with that, you want the access to the equipment and the opportunity to make the best thing possible to be a calling card for when you go into the world. And I don't know if they're going to get that chance because we don't know. So I don't know if it's the best time. On the flip side, there's not a lot of content being made on a sort of major level either. And so if you can make stuff, maybe you'll have more of a chance for it to get out there and exposed. I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer to that. What I sort of think is it's the best time to educate yourself generally, whether that's through the traditional academic channels or not is up to your own personal preference. But whether you do or don't go, I would still say use the resources available with books and YouTube and podcasts and all of that to just educate yourself and learn because that's that's going to be what will stand you in in better stead in the long run anyway and like reach out to people you know i've had producers on my show and they've basically said that if you reach out to us we might not answer you but you have more of a chance of us reaching back to you because we have a little bit more free time now and it's okay to ask for like a 10 minute zoom with someone just to pick their brains that maybe for some people could be a much better education in 10 minutes than a full three-year course, potentially, if you ask the right questions. Amazing. And a similar question, or in the same vein, big cities are artistic hubs with everything going on, the economy right now, production halted. Should artists still move or filmmakers move to big cities? Yes, if you want to go and live in the city for the city. If you're going because you think being in LA or London or New York is going to give you more networking or more opportunities potentially. But right now, the short answer is I don't think it matters where you are. I mean, again, the casting director I had on last night, he was asked this question from an actor in the UK who was saying that he was thinking of maybe getting a visa to go to LA next year. And the casting director said, you can if you want to come here and be here. But number one, like, we don't know what it's even going to be like in terms of just going out on the streets. But even if that's opened up, if you do get auditions, you're just going to do them from your room. Like they're going to be self-taped. Why go all the way to LA and incur the big city costs when you're going to maybe get those opportunities no matter where you are now? And I think that's that's actually a good thing. It's a level playing field now in some ways that you don't have to be in these big cities and live there permanently. I think you need to be willing to be able to go there if the work comes up, maybe go there to meet with people and network every so often, because I think you do have to show face and connect in a human way. But do you have to live there permanently? 
I don't think so. Not anymore. Um, side question. Uh, so I've listened to your podcast and I've heard like European sirens in the background. But where do you live? <laughs> I am about an hour and a half north of London. Okay. It's a city called Leeds. Not many people know of it unless you know like sports and soccer. It's not too far from Manchester or Liverpool. I'm kind of throwing out other cultural references. I'm like, <laughs> Liver- I'm like, well, I'm like Liverpool, Beatles. People know the Beatles. Not too far from there. UK's tiny. So I'm like an hour and a half from London, two hours from London. Um, and when you like filmed your short film, did you do that there or in London or somewhere else? We do it here because, number one, I've got a great group of creatives around me that are friends first and then like amazing directors, editors, cinematographers. Being real, like it's easier to film in a non-film hub because you don't have to go through as many hoops for things like permits or you might have to pay for locations, but not as much. And whilst it's a growing community and there are like studios and networks here, if you're in LA or in London, jack up the prices by like 50%, if not more. Amazing. I'm assuming the answer to this is no. This seems like an American question. Are you in any unions? Ah, um, I'm SAG after eligible, but I'm not in it yet because I don't need to. Um, and I don't, and I don't want to pay the initiation dues of 3000 I think it's still $3,000. So I'm not in it, but I'm eligible to be in it. I'm part of Equity in the UK, which is like the equivalent. Um, I know Equity US is theater-based. Equity UK is actually just like their SAG-AFTRA equivalent. But if I'm being brutally honest, they don't really do much. SAG-AFTRA do a lot for their actors and really like back them. Equity um, should maybe do some SAG-AFTRA seminars and take a note from their book. (laughs) Excellent anybody from equity is listening <laughs> no man, whatever man it's all good i'll send this to them i'll tag them on twitter it's yeah fine. yeah listen L- listen to and i'll put a timestamp. <laughs> it's great to have a union it's just like don't just be a union because you're giving me a fancy card and it's like a nice label like sag after do a lot of great stuff and i just don't feel like it's quite the same level here that's all yeah um okay so uh what can we do you and i to stress the importance of finance and savings and I guess financial intelligence to fellow artists and creatives. I don't know, man. I don't want to have to go full like method and go homeless just to prove a point. Like that seems a bit intense. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do that either. <laughs> I think we're doing it, right? Like I think just ta- I think just talking about it and having the conversation openly is 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 more than enough. And then I guess candidly saying like we're just artists and freelancers and creatives like anyone else and no one has the right answers but educate yourself there are informed people in the world who want to help people learn about finances and i guess not being hard on yourself like no one teaches this shit and you don't get taught in high school and there's probably reasons for that that we shouldn't talk about (laughs) but like yeah it's okay that you don't know but you have the power to know and i think We all deserve to foster a healthy relationship with money. No one's supposed to have financial hardship. And I think money isn't scarce. I think that there is like opportunities and abundance for everyone. That doesn't mean it's easy. It just means that we don't want to be in a victim mindset over it. And I think like I've been there. We've all been there. We can't do much more than that. I think ultimately you can lead a horse to water, as they say. And then it's up to the individuals to really want to educate. And we're all going through this together and figuring it out. Um, I don't think there is a black or white answer to it. That's the thing. Yeah, I agree. And I would say those two books you recommended, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and 
how to be rich or i forget i forget the name of the other one i will teach you to be rich <laughs> yeah insert affiliate link here no yeah yeah but reading either one of those or both you don't have to do much like just reading the one book you will be so far ahead of where you would be if you didn't read the book i'm not i'm not saying start a podcast about it i'm not saying start a website about it i'm you know don't, you don't have to delve into it hugely you just do one simple thing of like reading that book and your many steps ahead of where you were. Yes, but then the key is taking action on it too and like implementing stuff in a way that's specific to your situation. We all listen to stuff or read stuff, but like probably never really apply it much or any of it. But like I said, with that book, I actually applied like the stuff he said within like a few weeks. And like, I didn't see monumental changes overnight, but I look back now and go, well, that change in interest rate from 0.05% to 1% does make me like not loads, but quite there's quite a lot of coffees a month there now that I can just get almost for free off of interest. All that stuff is is important. Awesome. Okay, final question. Where can people find out more about you? My name is pretty unique, so I won't even like spell it now, but if you put it in the notes or something, Copy and paste that into Google. You'll probably find a lot on me because there's, there's no one else with my name. So that's one way, I guess, you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. It's probably the best way to to connect or engage with me around anything creative or, or artistic based. Oh, and can I, can I mention, so you have a podcast, which is actually how I met you, The Ash Tabba Show. The Ash Tabba Show, which is uh, on my YouTube channel. Uh, and then, you know, Spotify, Apple, all, all the good places you can find podcasts. I talk to people from various walks of life, but 80% are film and, and TV industry professionals. Um, a lot of it is casting directors, UK and US based. Um, so anyone who's listening that might be interested, I guess, in casting directors, advice, stories, insights on auditions, self-tapes. Yesterday, the guy I, I spoke to, he cast Pulp Fiction with Tarantino. And so like listening to their stories can be really amazing. So the podcast really focuses on on that. And it's just giving actors insight and demystifying, I think, a little bit the casting process, the filmmaking process, and, you know, letting people see that those people are human, too. They're not like evil gatekeepers. They're just creative people like the rest of us. Amazing. And I don't have the stats in front of me right now, but I feel think like if you look worldwide at the most popular podcast it's like joe rogan experience then this american life then artistic finance and then fourth is the ash tabba show i'm pretty sure i'd have to look up the stats i mean i'm 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 sure we were third and you're demoting us but you know it's okay i I think i was three (laughs) yeah i mean look i've been going for about seven months so if i'm ranked that high then i'll take i'll take it maybe it's chinese or russian bots inflating my stats i don't know well Ash Tabba or Ashley Tabba or Ashley Tabatabai. <laughs> thank you for sitting down and chatting with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the time. It was fun. It was good to just uh, be on the other side of the chair, like I said at the top. It's, it's cool. That was our interview with Ashley Tabatabai. My takeaways were, don't be a starving artist. Find a way to make income to live while simultaneously producing art. Take action to organize your financials. Knowledge is only useful if you take action. If you are an actor or filmmaker, go listen to the Ash Tabba Show. It's a great resource for the nuts and bolts of the business side of the business. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. 
Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.